Welcome to the How Writers Write podcast, a show focused on inspiring and empowering you to become a better writer. Come along as we deconstruct the tips, routines, and motivations of your favorite authors. In the end, it's all about getting your story onto the page. Hello and welcome. This is show number one. Today is November 4th, 2019. It is launch day. I am so excited and thrilled. Here we are. We have finally done it. This podcast is live. I'm kicking off the podcast with a really special interview. I spent the afternoon recording with the one and only Anne Hood in her Greenwich Village apartment. From the moment I met Anne, her warmth was so apparent. Anne has had times of great joy and great sadness in her life, and we talk about all of it in this interview. We dive into Anne's working habits, how she wakes up, when she writes, how she comes up with ideas for her work. Anne has written 14 novels. She is just a true powerhouse of a writer, and she drops so much wisdom for us. Anne also discusses her research method that left me nearly speechless. It seems as if the more authors I interview, the more I see just how unique each writing process is to the writer. We also talk about Anne's journey after the death of her five-year-old daughter and how it impacted her writing. I was so, so moved by her story and her deep courage to share it with me. I know you will enjoy this interview as much as I enjoyed speaking with Anne. Okay, without any further ado, here's episode one with Anne Hood. Welcome to the How Writers Write podcast, a show focused on decoding the tips, tricks, and writing processes of your favorite authors. I'm your host, Brian, and I am so excited today to welcome Anne Hood. Anne is the author of many best-selling novels, such as The Knitting Circle, The Obituary Writer, The Red Thread, and Somewhere Off the Coast of Maine. She is also an accomplished nonfiction writer as well, has written many wonderful books, her most recent book, called Kitchen Yarns, Notes of Life, Love, and Food. Anne also wrote a book I want to dive into with you called Comfort, A Journey Through Grief, where she shares a personal story of losing her five-year-old daughter, Grace, in 2002. That book was a New York Times editor's choice, as well as a top 10 nonfiction book of the year in 2008 from Entertainment Weekly. Anne, thank you, and welcome. Thanks for having me, Brian. So in my research, I also read some interesting <laughs> things about you. One of the things I read was you were a flight attendant <laughs> that is for true. many years. I was. In that time, as you're crisscrossing the world and the country, yes. were you writing when yeah. you were a flight attendant? I was. You know, it's funny. I, wa- I wanted to be a writer since I was so young, seven or eight years old. Okay. Grew up in a really crummy town. Well, it's a lovely town, but it was pretty economically depressed. And they didn't know how to help a kid who wanted to become a writer. Hmm. So every time I had to go to the guidance counselor or talk to an English teacher and I would talk about wanting to be a writer, they would say, well, no, people don't do that. You know, that's, Hmm. no, can't do that. And so I got in my head that I needed to have adventures in order to be able to be a writer, like run with the bulls, I guess, or, you know, dance naked in fountains in Paris. I decided the way to do that was to be a flight attendant because at least back then, so this I started in 1978, at least back then they didn't work a lot and the pay mm. was as good as my friends traipsing off to banks and things. Mm. And so that's what I did. I, I flew mostly international out of Kennedy and um, I wrote all the other time. I wrote on the plane after I plied my 
passengers with alcohol and <laughs> fell asleep. I would sit in the galley and write. I know that Eudora Welty had it right when she said all a writer needs to do is look at her own front porch. You don't really need to go yeah. and run with the bulls. But I will say that that experience really helped me a lot with discipline because yeah. I had to write when I could. Right. I'm picturing you on a plane <laughs> <laughs> flying, flying through the air and sitting see with like a scratch pad. You, you kind of got it. Yeah. You put the Ralph Lauren uniform on. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and you the know, bun. <laughs> and so, and so I think one of the things that's, that's interesting with a structure like that is you have to know how to really quickly fall into the work. Exactly. You're not warming up. Yes. And you're not like reading a few pages. It's like, I've got 15 minutes. That's exactly right. And here we go. Yeah. Like, what? how did you do that? Because I think that's really hard to do. It's hard, but it's general. just so necessary. Right. Um, now, I think, and, you know, you can, you can discipline yourself to write at the drop of a hat. You can't, however, choose your family. <laughs> I happen to have grown up in a large, very noisy, very, I'll say loving. You could also say intrusive Italian family. Okay. <laughs> And so I grew up with noise. Okay. And I grew up with, what are you doing alone in your room? Why are you weird? Sit at the table. No one will talk to you, but you must sit right here, you know. So I learned to write with noise. And when I had a few minutes, even as a younger person living at home, the discipline kind of, I grew into it. You know, it started when I was young. And uh, then right after college, I went to work for TWA. And I didn't have that. I couldn't do that thing that we're often told to do, which is, write for two hours a right, day or right. find those hours, whether it's you're a morning person or a night person. I was upside down. I never, I don't know if I was morning right, or night. Right. And I was always jet lagged. And I realized if I wanted to write, I just had to do it. And so I think so much of it is determination and of course, discipline, right? right. I, when you were on the plane and you were trying to get into writing, did you have a way to keep track of like, okay, here I was at an hour and a half ago, and yeah. now I've got 15 more minutes, so I'm going to scribble out 15 more yeah. minutes. It's funny because I do this even now on the computer, but when okay. I finish, I write in all caps, like the three next things. Okay, like a Hemingway, I think, I guess said the that same is thing. where I got yeah. the idea, yeah. actually, now that you say that. Yeah. I don't always do that. When I go back to the work, sometimes I've changed my mind or mm -hmm. I don't even look at it, but it helps me just stay on task, I guess. Okay. And so I used to do that. I used to carry notebooks. Uh, you know those ones? Um, they're like composition books. Yeah, yeah. And I used to have blank ones, and I just filled them. And when I had to go and, like, serve uh -huh. drinks or something, <laughs> I would just write in capital letters the next scene or the next thing that I needed to get yeah. to. Yeah. And that helped because you'd open it and say, okay, here I am. Okay. So I, I've traveled a lot for business okay. personally. In my old work life, and there's something about being on a metal tube, <laughs> you know, 35,000 feet in the air, which brings out like the weirdest parts of people. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like I've never seen human behavior quite the way I've seen it. I feel like on an airplane. Yeah. How long were you a flight? Eight years. For, for those eight years. Do you feel like you've taken some of those illustrations from that time? Like has, has that, have those worked their way into your books in any way? I don't really think so because- no. Uh, flying has changed so much since I did it. People were actually kind of civilized mm -hmm. in the in the good old days. Oh, man. Seats were spread out. People didn't get claustrophobia and like angry because you know their their tray table was in their yeah. lap because the guy in yeah. front of them. That stuff didn't happen. So it had to be really weird behavior, and then it, that would be too weird to put in fiction. Like right. no one would believe some right. of the stuff I saw. Right. 
I sometimes sit on planes now and look around and just say, I could not be doing it now. Do you ever like give like, um, you know, I've been here, you know, like, like I, you ever, are you extra nice? I always <laughs> tell the flight attendants because it has gotten us a lot of champagne. And they're like, sure, you yeah, were yeah. a flight attendant. And then we leave, it's like, it's for you. You know what it's like. You know, you know. That's amazing. I'm always interested in transitions mm-hmm. with people. I, I always think that there's something really special and profound about the in-between points in life. Yeah. And so as you were a flight attendant, did you ever think to yourself, this is what I'm going to do? And then how did you go from working as a flight attendant to becoming a working author? That That's a huge jump in between those two yeah, things. Yeah, it's kind of a funny story. You know, I, I have found that my life has not been a lot of epiphanies of like, right. now I know what I must do or <laughs> who I should marry or where I should go, but kind of gradual stuff. So I was a flight attendant and I was writing my what became my first novel. I, did, I okay. thought it was interconnected short stories, but it became somewhere off the coast of Maine. And I had a darling boyfriend at the time who, who asked me what I was writing. You know, what do you do in those notebooks? Because they were everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I told him that I was writing these stories and he said that he wanted to read them. I showed them to no one. That was another big part of my writing life. It was very secret. You know, I was very private about it. You know, he thought they were good and I trusted his opinion he said, why don't you go take a, a workshop at NYU? And so I took a workshop with E.L. Doctorow. I wasn't enrolled in a program. I just went to him and said, can I sit in? And he said, sure. It was a workshop, but he didn't read anybody's work. And so he just talked. And it was, I learned so much that semester wow. that, I, that I decided I could maybe enroll in a class. I'd do it for real. That's amazing. And that person uh, recommended me to the Bread Love Writers Conference. And I had never heard of it. I mean, I was not in the writing world at all. I said, I can't go away for two weeks. I work the most in the summer. Like, I fly internationally, yeah. you know. And he's like, well, find a way, because this is a really big thing I recommended you for. You got in. So I called in sick for two weeks, the two-week flu. <laughs> and I went to Breadloaf. And I always say that's when the change really happened, that I got validated for what I was doing, and people wanted to help me, and they did help me. What's interesting is it seems like there was a lot of writing way before this point. Like, oh, yeah. Like you were, you were filling up composition. I was. The, like, <laughs> the ones that's like the black and white checkered. That's the one. Yeah, <laughs> those are the ones. I love those. <laughs> yeah, the white checkered covered. I mean, that's such a formative time. Like how, how did you come up with stories in that time and what were you writing and yeah. why were you writing? <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, what, what? I think a lot of times when we write, we're exercising something out of our soul. Absolutely. And so do you feel like at that time you were read so much and now I want to try and do it myself? Or was it like, I've got something I need to get out? You know, I filled those notebooks, although there was a period of time in middle school where they were purple with daisies on them. But I filled notebooks most of my life. Most of it was imitative. You know, if I read a book I liked, I wrote a story like that or whatever. And I think we do that for a long time. I think there's a, a moment or a time when you realize that's what you're doing. Maybe your own voice surprises you. And so for me, it, well, I, was, I was writing this horrible novel called The Betrayal <laughs> of Sam Pepper. It was many notebooks long. <laughs> and it was really like a revenge story about my neighbor, but I changed everybody's name, but it rhymed with their real name. It was terrible. It was that first novel thing you do. Right. But I had many notebooks, and I had just discovered Raymond Carver, so a lot of it was very minimalist. Mm. But then I still loved British writing, so a lot of it was... British writing, sounding. It was terrible. And um, my family had a tragedy. My only sibling, my brother, died suddenly. 
I was on a layover in Los Angeles and I came home and spent the summer, took a leave and spent the summer with my parents. And I had been all set to move to New York and start flying internationally. I had an apartment. So I put everything on hold. And at the end of the summer, my wonderful mother said, look, you can't sit here forever. Mm. And this is going to go on forever. Mm. So go live your life. And I moved to this tiny apartment on Sullivan Street in Greenwich Village, moved in. And then I, I was like, wow, I live in New York now. And I wasn't <laughs> going back to work until like October. And this was summer, end of summer. And so I said, I'm going to finish my book. So I pull out all these notebooks and I start reading it. And it's just terrible. And I, I'm actually <laughs> laughing. I was like, this is the worst. I've been writing it for years. I picked all those notebooks up and I put them in the dumpster on Sullivan Street. <laughs> and on the way up back, I felt very liberated. And on walking back up to my apartment, I thought, listen, you've been writing your whole life. You've been a reader your whole life. You do this to understand the human condition, not for revenge, not to sound like Raymond Carver. You know, write something that matters. And of course, my brother had just died two months earlier. And I thought, I've got to write about grief. And I sat down and I wrote this sentence. It was, um, to Sparrow, her father is a man standing in front of a lime green Volkswagen van in 1969. And that is the first line of Somewhere Off the Coast of Maine. Like, I was on my way. But it was this realization of why we do it and what my voice is. And to sort of, that Eudora Welty again, sit on my own front porch, but tell it in a way that anybody or everybody Mm -hmm. can relate to. It seems like a lot of your work has been anchored in some way in grief. Yeah, that is true. As I was doing research on you and as I was reading about you, it just kind of hit me in these waves, you know, and I was just like, wow, like this is somebody who's had a not roses and butterflies life. That is correct. <laughs> in in huge ways, but in huge yeah. ways, I've had an incredibly happy, exciting life. It's funny. You know, I can never, I don't know, I can never think of my life as as bad or even tragic though I know like sometimes when I'm talking to people they're like whoa stop already you know you've I I don't want to hear more about (laughs) all that's befallen you but I don't know I'm I'm just an optimist and a happy person and um I mean I dreamed of being a writer and sitting across from someone making a podcast when (laughs) I was a little girl and like not a lot of people get sure all the stuff I've had yeah what as you think about the role that writing's played in your life as a little girl to saying mm-hmm. this is, you know, maybe not being able to articulate, yeah. I want to be a writer, but right. like knowing in your heart you wanted to tell stories. Yes. As these things have come in your life, you know, these these tragedies that it, you never see them coming and then they're there. Yeah. How has writing and the act of writing played a part in, I, I don't want to say understanding grief because I don't know if you I don't know if it does but maybe dancing around it a little bit maybe feeling the edges yeah that's really well said because I don't think we ever understand it yeah I mean yeah. we don't understand why what happens happens right. in so many ways on yeah. so many levels for many many years writing is what saved me hmm. from sadness as I just said after my brother died realizing write about something that matters dig deeper and uh, as, as other tragedies befell me, I always had writing and books in general and reading mm-hmm. as, as sources of comfort. Uh, so they helped me just understand the world in which I lived. I can't say that they helped me understand those really big themes that I don't 
think we ever really quite do. But as you said, you see the edges of it or um, you, you understand pieces of it or you understand its role in your life, but not larger roles. When my daughter died in 2002, that didn't work anymore. Hmm. I, it's like language stopped for me. I couldn't even read. Like I remember somebody brought me a People magazine and oddly, Michael Jackson had gotten married and like Elizabeth Taylor was his maid of honor or something. And uh, yeah, it was weird. And you're like, what world is this? I know, but they thought <laughs> you're going to laugh. She'll laugh. She'll smile. Wow. But I could not make sense of words. Like I could read sentences, but they didn't hang together as thoughts or into paragraphs. Mm -hmm. And so it was the first time in my life, really, when writing didn't help mm -hmm. me and didn't save me, nor did reading. I mean, I couldn't read anything. And that hole was enormous, yeah. especially when I'd come to rely on it for comfort, words for comfort, and because I, I thought it would pull me out of grief yet again, it just wasn't there. So it was especially hard because here was the worst thing that had ever happened to me, and I had none of my coping mechanisms. Loss on, on so many levels. Yeah, on so many levels. I, I mean, I actually didn't know who I was. Right. It was like taking away the things that make you, you, you know, as I was thinking about that scenario and I, I mean, yeah. I, I, I personally, so I have a seven and five year old. Oh, yeah. It really hits you. You know, it yeah. activates, a. it seems like something that you wrote first for you, but, but it, it seemed like there was like a timeless wisdom that people who have experienced awful tragedy and grief like that also, would hold on to yeah you know i wrote it it's so interesting and i i do like hearing what people i still get emails about i'm sure that book oh my gosh i want to say almost daily i mean honestly oh, really? wow for me when i could write again which was a couple years later so mm -hmm. she died in 2002 that book came out in 2008 just to give you you know it took a long time i right. wrote the knitting circle first mm -hmm. um which came out in 2006 for me it was kind of like written almost like you would make a quilt and I'm not a quilter but mm -hmm. but like these pieces mm. that I was cutting out and sort of putting down as I realized something so I remember the people fed us for months you know mm. we would open that our back door and there'd be lasagna or enchiladas or whatever and they saved us because they nourished us and I I was unable to put a meal together I remember mm -hmm. once staring at like a pot of water Someone had had the audacity to give me these really at least like gourmet ravioli, but you had to cook them. Mm -hmm. And I was like, how am I going to cook these and get the sauce mm -hmm. and do it at the same time? Like I was so incapable of doing anything. And I remember the night someone had left a veal stew and I heated it up and my then husband and my son and I are eating it and we all look at each other and we're like, this is terrible. This, mm -hmm. this is bad veal stew. <laughs> And I thought something has changed because I can taste food again. And I know this isn't good. And that led me to write an essay about how, how food comforts you and the ideas associated with that. So then comfort food, it was called, is over here. And then I learned to knit and I write about knitting and grief. But never was I seeing the whole, never was I thinking I was saying anything worthwhile or wise. Mm. Essays started getting published and my agent and editor were urging me to connect them somehow but I had no interest in doing it yeah they were published for many years four or five before I even agreed to try to connect them because to me it was like taking steps toward 
climbing my way out of his hole. Like, okay, I understand how I feel about church or faith. I can get up one rung or, because most of the time I kept getting knocked back down. Um, so it's interesting that a lot of the letters I get aren't from people who've lost children. I mean, the majority wow. are, but I, many of them are divorces, spouses, mothers or fathers dying. I even had one woman, and, and this wasn't frivolous. She was devastated because her husband insisted they, when they retire, they move to like Arizona or one of those places mm-hmm. where people retire. And she gave up everything. She wasn't near her grandchildren. She loved her house, her part-time job at the library. And she was just lost. And she said comfort helped them. No, it helped her. Yeah. And it's so interesting to me, like it's just about, I guess on some level, that there's hope when you're feeling despair. Yeah, I mean, in my life, we've had our share of two-by-fours yeah. in the face, yeah. you know, and, and you don't know it's coming until it's there. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, the first thought is, is there a reset button yeah. here? When those things happened to me, I found myself looking at writing as a way for a different me to express me, mm-hmm. that makes sense? Yeah. And, you know, our, what, what I've experienced is not the same, you know, like, but, but it was an interesting tool and writing was a way almost to question a different me. That's interesting because actually I have thought of it as setting a reset button because you can change how things go in fiction. And I like that power and that possibility. Like even back with somewhere off the coast of Maine, I saved the person who represented my brother in that book. Or in, in The Knitting Circle, or any books I've written since Grace died, I explore the different ways things can go, the different places. So I start with the germ of my my theme, I guess. But I I can have it work its way out differently. I can have that character who something similar happens to respond this way. I can have somebody in the story take a bigger role or a lesser role like you are resetting it yeah because what you know as the writer is that if you took away all that stuff if you just kept peeling it you're back with you and you know (laughs) and the theme do you think that translates to life i've often wondered if you know you create these fictions and you create these characters and if you think of yourself as a character or a series of characters do do you think sometimes as we create things and as we write Mm -hmm. things and we say, actually, I'm going to tweak this, and it's not going to be this way. Do you think we have the same part almost do that to ourselves? Uh, yeah, I think kind of we do. It was funny when Somewhere Off the Coast of Maine came out. So it's, it's three women who were college friends in the 60s. And when we meet them in the 80s, one has gone, she's mentally ill, and she's mm-hmm. gone off, you know, her, she's unhinged. One is an absolute control freak. She has to order her life so specifically. She's in charge of everything to the detriment of those around her. And one is kind of like an old hippie and she makes pottery and she's artsy and you know and over and over I got the question which one is you and right. I thought are right, there's someone mentally ill and there's a total control freak or <laughs> someone who you know lives out in the woods and obviously I'm none of those people and then it dawned on me I'm all of those people. Right. I sometimes felt I was losing my mind from grief. Yeah. And I did become more orderly and perhaps a control freak so that I didn't lose my mind because right. of grief. And of course, the pottery and all that was me as a writer, like that part of myself. And if you married all those women, I guess you ended up with me. And I didn't even realize when I was writing those characters that I was exploring myself. Mm-hmm. 
Do you feel like as you made changes to those characters, those were reflected in you as well? I think so. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does make yeah. sense. And I think so. I, I mean, I think perhaps the biggest example of that, a lot of people think the knitting circle would be the answer because it's the book I wrote right after Grace died. But really, my novel, The Obituary Writer, okay. is two characters, two women, alternating stories. One is in 1920 uh, and one is in 1960. And um, their lives intersect in a way I can't tell you because that's a spoiler. But... <laughs> um, Oddly, that woman in 1920 taught me more about myself hmm. than almost any character I've written. She um, has lost her lover in the 1906 earthquake, and she just doesn't believe that he died, and it's 14 years later. Hmm. And people are like, you got to let it go, and her right. life is trying to find him. She just believes that if he died, she would have known. She would have gotten a sign, or their love was great enough to... and. Um, I learned a lot about my own magical thinking when I wrote her, but it also changed a lot about who I was hmm. at the end. So, it's, what what do you mean magical thinking? I don't know. I think we do this stuff as people, but also as writers, uh -huh. where we play games with ourselves, you know. And when we think about, oh, that bird is really Grace coming to say hello. That red right. bird, yeah, or. Wow, look at me. I'm so much stronger. I'm strong. Sometimes that's magical thinking, mm -hmm. you know. So it's just looking for creating worlds that aren't exactly provable or right. maybe real. I don't know. But maybe at the but same maybe time. Maybe they are. Yeah. Maybe that red bird is. Right. And it, you want to think that. Yeah. Well, it, it, you know, for me, I've been really swimming in this question. Yeah. Which is where where do stories live before they come to me? Mm. Any writer, I was just having coffee with um, a really good friend of mine. She's a writer. And we were talking about this idea that, you know, any writer who's, you know, been working for a while, no matter their quality or skill, mm -hmm. if they're swimming in a story, at some point they're walking down the street and a jackhammer's going <laughs> and it speaks to them. And there's no reason why, right. but a piece of the story that maybe they couldn't get comes to them. Oh, yes. I agree with that. And when it's happened to me, it's so profound and it's so much more than what I'm capable of. Like, mm -hmm. I'm not a good writer to begin with, and this is so many levels above what I'm capable of. Uh -huh. I always have this reaction of like, okay, so then where did this come from? And in a way, that's magical thinking. Yeah, oh, it is. You know, yeah. and, and so as you think about the magical things of bird yes. representing something. <laughs> do stories live in that same place as that magical thinking in a way? I think they kind of do. Yeah, I mean, I think it's funny because I, I have to talk about the obituary writer again as an example. I described it very succinctly, but if I talk about where it was living, mm -hmm. this idea of the story being there, the 1906 earthquake was on April 18th. That's the day my daughter died. Mm. One day... I read about the 1906 earthquake and I saw that it was April 18th and it got me thinking about earthquakes and sort of metaphorically, like everybody knows about that earthquake. Mm -hmm. No one, April 18th comes and goes to other people. They don't know that is my earthquake. We all share 9-11 or, you know, the day Kennedy was assassinated, mm -hmm. but we don't know each other's personal earthquakes and small ones. So that's just a thought I had. It wasn't a story. There wasn't a woman who lost. Mm -hmm. So... I just remember reading that article. And then 
I read a book called Napa about the wine industry and how it came to Napa Valley. And I loved the book. I just thought it was so interesting. I mean, I'm talking about over the course of two years, all this stuff is happening. I saw like Kennedy's inauguration speech on some documentary and I, but just all these pieces. Mm-hmm. So then why one day do I think of, wouldn't it be interesting if these two women from mm-hmm. different eras le- lived kind of parallel lives and they intersect? And then, then it's like, yeah, the earthquake. The, like everything right, comes crashing right. together. But I can actually sit down and tell you so many pieces of that book. I remember noticing it, thinking it, never thinking, oh, I should write a book about that. And the story, everything collides. You know, it works in a way that probably would be hard to be like, I'm going to try and weave these things together. Of course, like, I'm I gonna could like, never ah, do that. You know? No one could, right? <laughs> right? I couldn't. Yeah, so I think that's part of the magical thinking is that your brain is, I always say, think of my brain as that thing in your um, dryer that collects lint. <laughs> like, things are going in there. And right. then every so often I reach in and pull out all the stuff. And it's like, wow, these all connect. Look at what I have. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things you've written about a lot as well is knitting. So I, I mean, I was raised sports. So knitting, (laughs) knitting, 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 yeah, we we didn't collide. Yeah. Interesting though, in the past, let's call it a couple months, my wife has taken up knitting because my my daughter, for her curriculum, yes, is learning to finger knit. Oh, is she at a Waldorf? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, my wife homeschools her, so she homeschools Waldorf. Okay. And so she's learning these finger knits yeah. and, and also learning to read at the same time. I know. That's, that's that theory with Waldorf schools yeah, that they go together. It's so interesting to see the two worlds. And I had never really connected it as being uh, – I'd never seen it as being connected yeah. until I started to read more of your work. And I realized how interconnected, you know, this like learning reading, grasping language, but then also this really slow – methodical intricate i mean i watched my daughter she's seven doing these things over and over and over Mm -hmm. and i you know finally connected all these things and i and i wondered what your perspective is on these like almost meditative actions that writers seem to have as like the yin and yang of their lives writing being this thing that i look at as being it's it's an intense practice to sit by yourself Mm -hmm. and create yeah you know you're really channeling a lot of energy. And then you have this this other part that's restorative in a way. You know, I think of like Murakami and like running marathons. Yes, right. That seems slow. Yes. And, and running, at least, I know your mind kind of clicks to a different that's the, zone. That's the thing, I think. I feel like I have read, you know, a lot of um, writers from long ago, and they would say, like, make sure you exercise mm-hmm. every day. And, and I understand that because you need – to exercise something. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you have to exercise your body, but when I learned to knit, which was during my time of not reading or writing, it was mm-hmm. right after Grace. It was six months after Grace died, and friends recommended that I do this. And like I was a home ec failure, and <laughs> I, I, I'm old enough that we had to take home economics, and I could not work a sewing machine. Yeah. And I couldn't make my wraparound skirts. I couldn't go to school the day we all had to wear them. You know, we had to like parade around in them. So it's a great source of humiliation and embarrassment for me. So never would I have thought of a craft thing mm-hmm, to help mm-hmm. me. But it was pretty immediate that knitting just felt right. I, I wasn't a good knitter. Mm. And in fact, I've been doing it now, I don't know, 17 years. 
And just recently, am I like, I actually can read a pattern. <laughs> I just made this beautiful glove, you know. And that's 17 years of making yeah. really things no one wanted and, you know, um, lumpy things and or overly simple things. But um, I wrote about it a couple times, and an editor friend of mine at a now-defunct magazine called Body and Soul called me up and said, I want you to write an article about, is it true? Like, you're, you're writing these essays mm-hmm. about how it helps you, and I want to know, is, is it true? And so I had, you know, I had interviewed physiologists, and your heartbeat really slows when you knit. Mm. Your blood pressure drops. I mean, not, you know, a lot, but it drops a significant amount. And it is one of the tasks, like running and like gardening, mm. in which your brain is both active and resting. Mm. Yoga is not the same because in yoga you have to keep moving. It's not repetitive tasks. You, you like you like the energy shifts to the you know your front of your mind because you're like okay now I got to move my arm. I yeah, gotta exactly. Do this, you yeah, you're thinking yeah, too much. Yeah, whereas yeah. once you know your row knit to pearl to, you're just doing it. Mm. And I cannot tell you how many times while knitting a writing problem, I solve a writing mm. problem. I'll say, oh, I know what she and I put those knitting needles down, and I can fix something. And I don't even feel like that's what I'm thinking about because you're kind of thinking about nothing. Right. And it's this combination of, and I wonder if your daughter feels this even at seven, of there's a beautiful sound. Well, she's finger knitting. There's a beautiful sound of knitting needles. It's not a clack, really. There's not really a word for it. It's, it's a yeah. little clack. And like today, I was right on, the, on the train, I was knitting with um, this really yummy cashmere. Mm. And it's kind of, bulky and every time my hand touched it, it just feels like it's sensual like I kept thinking I love the way this yarn feels mm. you know and and so there's it's a whole sensual it's sound it's feel sight it's quiet mind I don't know it's just so perfect yeah it's as you were talking it was interesting the parallel between you know you're like I've been knitting for 17 years and I just now feel <laughs> and i I find myself saying that about writing yeah. a lot where it's like yeah. so much of it's lumpy, you know, and it's like <laughs> oh, ill fitting. Yeah. <laughs> and it takes it takes such a phenomenal amount of time to keep going and and yet yeah. you do it. And with knitting, it quiets your mind, whereas writing kind of exercises it, it in, does. in in a way. Yeah. Those two things seem like they, they go together for you. It they do. And you know, there's a kind of a knitting saying that it's not about the end product. So knitters are ruthless in Hmm. taking out their mistakes. I mean, I have watched people take out entire backs of a sweater because the pattern was irregular. Or um, I have done it myself. I'm like, I messed this up, and I just, I take out so much days, weeks of work because it's about the process, and I think that is so true of writing. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's why, you know, it's like revision, the only difference is you really always can fix knitting. <laughs> you can't always <laughs> fix writing. Sometimes it's too late. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's too gone, too far yeah. gone. But seriously, I, I do feel like when I'm taking out a mistake in knitting, I almost always think about, I, I kind of laugh because I'm like, and I'm hesitating to take out a comma or right. a page or a seam that's going to make the pattern work. You know, there are, for me, I really do think that with, to me, they're very interconnected. It's such an interesting parallel. A lot of your work and 
your writing is, is cooking intertwined with it as mm-hmm. well. You know, mm-hmm. very strong. I sound like I'm a Victorian woman. Just or prairie, prairie yeah. woman, knitting and cooking. And food representing <laughs> something more than just the meal, right? Like it has yeah. like a um, expression of yourself. And, you know, same thing, you know, with, with their curriculum where it's like they learn how to make bread. Like that's like one of the right. first things yes. they do. It's like interesting to see those big buckets in the same way yeah. represented in other places. Well, you know, I, I do feel like, Cooking has a little bit of that same mind thinking and not mm-hmm. thinking zone because sometimes you have to chop an awful lot of stuff. It's not exciting. Right. It's not challenging. I love that that zone. Mm. I just love that, again, a repetitive action. I should yeah. have been like worked for Ford cars or something. Uh. Cars. But I, I do. I love that. Yeah. Um, my husband said I was making something the other night and he said, I, you know, it was so interesting you stepped back and said kind of to yourself, oh, everything's in order. I'm ready. And I said, oh, I thought I said that. <laughs> but that idea, again, like writing, when yeah. things make sense, when you say, oh, here it is. This stuff's all going to go in at once. And that I don't know. I just, I guess a lot of writing is getting your mind um, prepared for it. Mm. You know, and all of these things that I like to do are, kind of reflect that same kind of thinking so in the same way that you have to chop you know all your carrots and everything (laughs) to get ready to to make a a meal do you have a process by which you get ready to write oh boy do i let's hear it so (laughs) let's hear it it's so ridiculous okay i go through this thing where i i go to you know the place where you buy office supplies and i get three colors of index cards And I buy highlighters and post-it notes. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And my favorite thing that was invented is a highlighter with post-it notes in it. (laughs) You can pull them out. It's even better. Yeah. And I spend a lot of time organizing my office supplies. (laughs) And in my mind, these three color-coded index card piles are going to represent like the three different conflicts that I'm going to have in my novel and then I always do research even in fiction Mm -hmm. you know I Mm -hmm. wrote the knitting circle and I read everything about knitting I I spent weeks at the library Pablo Neruda has poems about knitting (laughs) and then the day I was writing I was reading about um, like Ukrainian mittens that they knit for weddings. I'm like, that's not going to be in this book. I'm done with my I've research. I've gone far enough. Yeah, I'm, this <laughs> rabbit hole is, I'm climbing out of this one. So I do all my research with all my things. Yeah. And I organize, and I think in some ways I'm world building for the book because I'm doing that research and I'm writing things yeah. down and I'm rearranging cards. And, and then I start writing and I never look at any of that stuff. I don't even look at it. So that's my process. It's ridiculous. Okay. <laughs> that, that took me a little by surprise there. <laughs> um, I don't look at it. Do, okay. I, like at all. Like it just, it just intentionally or you're like, I don't need it. I don't need it. I don't know. I don't, it's just, it's the okay. way I prepare. So um, I, I will look, for example, back to the obituary writer. I guess yeah. that's the book on my mind. Um, I had to look up some date. Like I had to make sure that when I said World War, you know, the Spanish influenza was this year, I wanted to make sure. So right. I, I checked. But that was like fact checking. But no, I just put it all away. And so do you have the story in your mind or do you create a 
general like character arcs or plot scenes or templates or is it just you do all this research it sits, <laughs> it sits in your brain and then as you knit and do other things it slowly comes out and you write the book uh, sort of i think because okay on those index cards i have great plans and i have plot points those are the post-it notes actually okay i put the post-it okay. notes have my plot points okay and i will play around with them and and in for the first like 50 or 60 pages I still am using all my stuff and looking, but there, I hit a point hmm. where the story comes together. It's knit together. Yeah. And um, I don't need any of the stuff. Okay. So I'm working on a book now about my days as a flight attendant. It's actually, okay. it's nonfiction, but it's actually about that, that job for women and a- aviation. It's about a lot of things with, through my lens as, because I happen to straddle what they call the glamour age okay. of flying. And when it started to change, the eight years I was in that industry, a lot changed. So I started with people still wearing suits on planes. And, you know, then we know where we are. It is now. It is what it is now. Right. Anyway, I have done so much research. That's what I've been doing for six months. I've read every book. I even read Coffee, Tea, or Me. I mean, I've read every book. I have a stack on my night table with my post-it notes sticking out, highlighted things. I probably won't even look at them. <laughs> I mean, it's I, crazy. No, it's yeah, it's incredible. I mean, it's incredible to to keep it all in in your head, and it just comes together the way that it you does. Know, I I don't know if I'm keeping it in my head or I'm keeping it in my cells. Mm. I feel like the story I'm absorbing this. I'm I'm creating story. I don't know. It's a weird I love that. Yeah. thing. It's not like I'm keeping three plots and right. It's more like. I'm in, I've made a world, and when those 50 or 60 pages are done and I put all those, you know, props away, I'd rather be in that world than this world. Interesting. So I am so in it, and it's right. all I can think about. Right. And um, I think that's why when I was a flight attendant, I could smile so much because I wasn't even thinking about your gin and tonic. Right. I was back with my right. 1969 green Volkswagen van right. people, you know. Do you ever go back afterwards and, and look at, books off for printing and you open up your oh, research my own. your uh, research, oh, research and say how much does it line up with the original kind of material you pulled together with what it no, later I throw it became. Out. you throw it out i am I there's am no, for, archives. no archives no archives i have seen however at a certain point i write up my idea mm-hmm. for my editor in the hopes of getting a book contract and my agent and I'm at that 50 page or earlier. So I'm not really, don't really know what I'm doing, but I have an idea and I write that up and it feels very much like, yes, I'm on my way. I know. Mm -hmm. And I have looked at those and it's laughable. I mean, it's so different. Oh my gosh. So different. What's your working habit? Like when do you, are you morning, night, how many hours daily are you like, uh, whenever it happens, it happens. Well, it, it's really hard because I'm not a morning person or a night person. <laughs> like I'm an afternoon person. Yeah, person. I go to bed early. I don't like to wake up early. I like to be in bed. So I, I have a, um, I just read, I, I wish you could remember who the writer was who said this, but it was like, oh, it's Stephen King, I think. He said, I have to write 10 pages a day. And sometimes I write them by nine in the morning and I have all day to go play basketball and do what I want. And sometimes at nine at night, I'm still trying to get my 10 pages. Yeah. I'm kind of in that 
that camp. Mine is like two hours. Okay. If I can work in a two hour, I, I can accomplish a lot. Yeah. Um, I have the law of diminishing returns. Like if I push past that too much, um, it's really not very good. Writing seems to be a really interesting profession in which I spent, I just came from the business world. I spent 12 years in huge corporations. Uh-huh. And, you know, they expect you are putting the time in. Yeah. You know? Yes. And it's interesting that writing, there's this this two to three hour, like, mythical range of yeah. creation. And then it seems, it seems you know, writers kind of all agree after that point. It just, yeah. you just kind of drop off a cliff. It's interesting. I don't know if it's just being that creative, filling a blank page. Is that a reflection of the just the pure intensity of creation? I think so. For me, yeah. I think it is. I, I am a fan of, you know, artist colonies, like I mm-hmm. like Goniata or McDowell mm-hmm. or something. And what I find there is I wake up, like I like to wake up and kind of kill time. It's mm-hmm. not wasting time, but there are a series of things I like to do, and I always feel like it's warming me up. Mm-hmm. And it's like around 11 or 10 when I'm ready to work. Yeah. And it's like one or two when I'm done. And when I'm at an artist colony, I'll go back to work often after a three or four hour break. My yeah. life doesn't allow me to have a second round. Yeah. Um, but I think I could probably do that in, in some world. Yeah. Not my world, though. Right. Yeah. Um, and do you, do you work in here in your apartment? Do you have an office you go to work at? No. So Where does the magic happen? Yeah, the magic happens. So you are in the entire apartment. There's no bedroom. Okay. It's all built in right here. Wonderful. It's a Murphy yep. bed. And right here is a desk that drops. So everything is built in. Okay. So my beloved writes here, and I stay in bed and write. That that that's that's such an interesting arrangement because like I I I meet a lot of writers and and um, writing in front of anybody is like their own version of hell. You know what I mean? Oh like, really? Like oh, actually sitting down. Oh yeah. Are, do you, do you find yourself like talking in other voices very much? Like do you guys ever laugh at each other because you know you're like talking some scene no, out? No, I don't and, think so. We're no. pretty quiet. I mean, okay. he puts on headphones okay. and listens to music. Okay. And so, I and I just. Right. You just you go know. off in your own land. Yeah, I just, I, I mean, that. you know, my world is kind of funny. And I will say that in my uh, Providence, I live in a loft in Providence, and there are many chairs and couches and things, but I still prefer pajamas and bed. And a friend of mine who's a writer always talks about he has to be in the dream state. He doesn't mean like literally working from a dream, but once you shower and get dressed or you go out sure. into the world it's very hard and that's how I am I like kind of a fuzzy I don't even wear my glasses when I write I just like kind of a hmm. like I'm in, in a Monet world or something I like that when you're working on a draft on a book do yeah. you work through the entire draft and then go back and edit or are you yeah. like a write at 20 go back and edit 20 and feel your way through it I do the whole thing you do the whole thing and that's why it's sometimes so confusing because I'm like Who's Christopher? Right. Because I, mean, I right. dropped him, you know, at some right, point or, right, right. or whatever. Um, what I do, though, is I read what I wrote the day before mm-hmm. so I can keep up the emotional yeah. integrity and, and also the plot. That um, seems to be a theme. Is a it? lot of writers yeah. I speak with say the same thing, which is they go back and they read whatever they were working on. They don't edit it. No. They just let it be. 
Unless it's really use. horrible, I'll fix it because I'm like, ooh, right. I can't. I've got to. I, you yeah. survive the emotional crushing yeah, of that first exactly, draft. You exactly. know? Yeah, <laughs> I survived reading my first draft of my work. But you know, I know a lot of writers who never finish their novel because of that. I'm just right. gonna get the first twenty pages right, or the first right. fifty pages, or the first five chapters. And it's. I think it can become a stalling technique right. or a crutch. Becomes a reason not not to keep going. Exactly. What's like the balance for you between how much time you spend composing compared to editing? Oh, it's all revision. Okay. It is all revision. I I really either the uh, poet William Matthews said um, revision isn't cleaning up after the party; it is the party. Mm. And I think you have to embrace that. So I think you know if I wrote a page a day. I would have a first draft in a year, mm-hmm. right? Roughly. It would not be good. Mm-hmm. It would take me two years. Right. I mean, th- this is kind of funny math, but um, I spend much more time. Re- I can get a draft out with discipline and focus in a year, nine months probably. But it takes me three to five years to get right the, man- the book you're going to read out. It's all revision. It's hard work, oh, right? Yeah. I mean, like there, there's a certain thrill and enjoyment on that first draft because you don't know what's happening, and there's something exciting about seeing oh, yeah. the story come together for the first time, and then you go back and you read what you thought you were really excited yeah. about, and you, you know, there's like an ah oh, shit, you know, yeah, like, exactly. now I've got to, now I've got to try and iron this out. Mm-hmm. Um, for you in that process, like what, what percent of writing for you is you have the right technical skills and um, you have the right like mental fortitude and attitude to just actually work through four to five years of editing, (laughs) which is, which is hard, right? That's, that's hard work. Yeah. I think there's a couple things. The first is to not start it right away. Like kind of coast on that feeling of, I just wrote a book. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't write a book. Yet. Right, right. You right, know, it right. feels pretty. It, it, you should feel the joy because that is hard to write a book. Yeah. And so I put it away. And I have put it away for as much as four, five, six months before I looked at it again. You do other projects. You know, I write essays or I start researching something or, you know, whatever. Um, because when you look at it again, it's pretty easy to get into the revision because you're like, thank heavens I didn't show this to my editor. Or mm-hmm. I think distance gives us a clearer eye, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know? And so that's my first trick in a way is just don't look at it um, for a while. Then I'm eager to start fixing yeah. it. Yeah. Then I want to do it. And I, I will go through many rounds myself, three, four, five, six, before I even show it to my agent's. I do a few rounds with her before we show it to my editor. This sounds like I'm not a very good writer. I, I realize as no, I'm saying this, I, but it's just the the tweaking that you want. Yeah. I don't know. I, you know, my editor said once, like, as this is, it could be published. I just want it to be more. And I, you know, and I, and she said what I was thinking. Yeah, you want to keep pushing so it's the best thing it can be, right? Yeah, and you, you, you've written many novels at at this point and you know in that editing process for each one of those how did you know it was it was done it was ready was there somebody else or what did you just have to come to your own conclusions on it there's there's like different stages of done like 
yeah. almost always after I've done several rounds of revision myself over the course of a year or two, and I think I'm done, I am always shocked when my agent is like, how in the world did this woman stay in her house all these years? Where, you know, what do you mean? And I'm like, what? Right. what? And I'm shocked. I'm shocked. So that's the first letdown. And then I have to like take to my head. <laughs> Seriously, like I get really, there's a lot of knitting goes on at yeah. that point, you know, a lot of chopping on you. Yeah. Um, and then we work on it. You know, I'll go back and forth with her quite a bit. So then I'm shocked the next time when my editor can write a 12-page letter. So I don't know what done is. Mm. I, I don't even know sitting here, um, but I'm glad it's not up to me because I was done five drafts ago, I think right. I was done. Right. Right. Um, I, we all know that, and yeah. every writer understands that. It's good to have another voice you trust, definitely, or voices. So when you're when you're concepting a book, you know, and we kind of talked about this a little bit. Mm -hmm. When is it you feel like you have the spark or you have enough to be like, okay, now I've got a book that's ready to go. Like now I'm ready to write this thing. Yeah, I think it. Ha I think it really. There's two points. One is that research point, like, mm -hmm. you know, when I was with the Ukrainian wedding mittens, or like, I remember I'm researching the 1906 earthquake in San Francisco before it and right after it for the obituary writer, and I'm in the library, and I'm reading about illegal Chinese gambling <laughs> dens. So I guess you just reach this point where you're like, done, Yeah, not going to put that in the book. So that's the first, I'm ready. What about before that point? Like, how, how do you get to the point where you're deciding, I'm going to write a book on this relative topic? Yeah. So, you know, it's that it's that collision of events or, or mm. thoughts or mm -hmm. details that sort of get a spark. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm like, okay, yeah, I, I write about the earthquake and she lost her lover in the earthquake. And, oh, Kennedy's speech, I'm going to use 1960. And I know a lot about 1960 because I remember it, you know, and I'm, I'm going to go and buy Old Life magazine and look at what was happening and advertise what people were reading and thinking about. So you get very excited about all these ideas, kind of knowing uh, uh, stories bubbling there, and then do all that research, you're ready to write, and then it's sort of like torture for 50 <laughs> to 100 pages where you're like... So what if her husband's missing in an early, you know, who cares that right. she worked for the Kennedy campaign and it's just not collect. So you have this one spark where everything connects. I'm ready to write and then nothing is connecting. That's how it feels to mm -hmm. me. And then somehow, somehow around page 50, 60, 70, the bigger spark happens. And then I can. A couple more questions. Yeah. A lot of people, there's this, belief that well when I finish my book then I'll be really happy mm -hmm. and then there's when I get my agent I'll be really happy <laughs> and then it's when I get my book published I'll be really happy and then on and on and on and on and on it goes yeah. and I'm grateful to talk to somebody who's been writing and a working writer for so long because here you are you know a dozen books later yeah. you know yeah and as you look back was there any point in which you thought, okay, now I've gotten to where I wanted to be, or do you feel like now <laughs> there's there's this other plateau that you're saying, here's here's uh, the next thing I'm I want to get to? For me, they're very personal and not mm -hmm. not necessarily that interesting. Like, it isn't a money thing. It isn't a a movie deal. It isn't 
a prize. All those things would be lovely. All those things are lovely. Right. But there's personal things. Like I want to be able to, to tell a story that does this, or I want to be able to tell a story in this way that I haven't done yet. You know, and I, 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 there's that, I heard Tim O'Brien so often talk about when he wrote The Things They Carried mm-hmm. and someone coming up and saying, you've got to stop writing about the war. You've got to get over the war, you know. And when they walk away, him thinking, i got to start over. I didn't do it right because she thinks it's about the war. And I'm writing about love. And I'm writing. And so I think it's that, that idea of you don't want that struggle to end, though. I always want to be trying that next thing. I think it would be very sad to feel content with what you've done or what you have. I think nothing will ever replace the day you see your first book at a bookstore. Like, it's great when this box arrives. You're like, I have books, and you hold them, and you Mm -hmm. smell them, and it's so great, and my name's on them. But there's nothing like they weren't sent to you. They're like in the world, and you see your book in a bookstore, and, and that is a pleasure that has not diminished. Yeah. So, you know, my, I don't know, 14th novel comes out, and I'm like, it is on the shelf of this bookstore. I don't ever want to lose that feeling. And the only way you're going to keep that feeling is to keep writing things that are going to be on shelves in bookstores. And that's a personal thing. Okay, so I ask the same three questions to everybody at the, to kind of round out the podcast. And so yes. I'm going to ask them to you okay. to keep the tradition alive and, and, <laughs> okay. and, and rolling. Question number one, is there a specific tool, can be anything, pencil, software, a chair that you absolutely must have to write? Well, you know about all my office supplies already. <laughs> yes. But I have to say that in an ideal world, mm-hmm. it is my cozy pajamas in my bed. Now, I can write on airplanes, and I can write sitting outside somewhere in a cafe. But to me, my best writing and the thing I love the best is a very particular pair of pajamas and my bed with my sheets that I love so much. I love it. I love it. Um, how do you how do you deal? And we've touched on this a little yeah. bit, but like, how do you deal with just the constant ups and downs, the roller coaster of the writing life? Oh, you know, I think it's interesting. I reached a real low point in about 1995, where. Um, my editor I had been with for a long time left. The publishing house, I was what they call orphaned. No one really wanted me. I'd written several books. They had done well. One had done like really well. Still no one, I wasn't their writer. I had no money. I had married someone who had no money. We had babies. I couldn't pay for the heat. And mm. I lived in this big like Adams family house. I know this sounds like crazy, but I, I was offered a job at a, full-time teaching job um, at a really good MFA program. And I, I was like, I just know myself, and if I become a full-time teacher, I'm not going to write my books anymore. Like, mm-hmm. it will take me forever to write the next book. And a friend called and offered me um, three sex quizzes to write for Cosmopolitan Magazine. And I said, can I do it anonymously? And he said, yes. And he said, it's $6,000. And it was like a million dollars at that point in my life. So I did it. I felt it was a sign. Don't take that full-time job. A magazine calls and offers you something you'd never thought you'd write or want to write ever again, but you just got $6,000. You can pay your heat. You can pay this. You can pay your credit card. And it was a sign to me. And so I've never gotten that low again. 
but I just know around the corner there is something. I know I'm like Pollyanna. It's terrible, no, I but it. I just, you I have to it. get that low to know that you can right. pull yourself up. There's something about when you pursue something of the heart, it's going to cost you something. Yeah, and you're going to give up stuff. Right, I mean, you know, right. I, over the years with ups and downs. Right. It's not going to be free. Like, it's not going to be... No. I, like I said, he came from the business world. Yeah. And, and there's a reason, I think, why that life is so attractive to so many people. It's because it doesn't cost you personally anything. Right. You know? That's right. You show up and you have a great paycheck. Yeah. And health insurance. Yeah. And we get know? two weeks off with, yeah, all this right, stuff. Right. Right. And, and the, the bar of success is fairly low. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's not that hard to be successful in that world. Yeah. Whereas when you deal with things of the heart, whether it's writing or whatever, you know, there's this thing where you have to pay some price. And that doesn't mean you're going to, you know, live on the streets and be destitute. Yeah, and it's not a Faustian bargain, but it's, you know, but you're right. right. You you give up stuff. Right. There's a sacrifice almost. You know, I love what um, the painter David Hockney said. It's um, something like many bank presidents on their deathbed wish they had been painters mm-hmm. but no painters on their deathbed wish they had been bank I presidents and i <laughs> right? completely so, agree right? as it's well what you're right. Saying. Yeah. right okay so so the last question yeah. is you know if you could give it a, a piece of advice to yourself when you first your you know flight attendant <laughs> and you're just starting to get into this game if you could tell yourself one thing then um knowing everything you know now what would it be this is terrible to say, but I, I wouldn't have done anything differently. Mm. So I guess I would just say, keep going. I love it. That's a perfect way to end. <laughs> and thank you so much. Oh, I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. But right now, I need your help. Please, please, please take 15 seconds and rate and subscribe to this podcast. This is a huge, huge deal for us. I'll spare you the details why, but just trust me, your support means the world. So just stop. Yes, you. Just open up your phone and click subscribe and give us a rating. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at How Writers Write. Your engagement counts so much. Thank you again to Anne Hood for her gracious interview and all of her wisdom. Also, thank you to Charlotte Cusano for producing the podcast. I'm your host, Brian, and thank you for listening. Go rate and subscribe.